Hey everyone, this is Jamie Bateman. Real quickly, I wanted to share with you something uh, that's been pivotal in the growth and success of my businesses, and that is my partnership with Haven Financial Services. Um, I've been working with Haven for over a year now. Christine Valdez was on episode 70 of this podcast. So go check that out if you want to hear her story. It was a fantastic personal story for sure. But Haven has been awesome. They provide me with monthly reports that are super clear and discernible. And it, that provides me with clarity and focus so that I can do what I do best, which is running my businesses, not preparing financial reports. Um, again, if you're in the market for a top-notch financial service company, uh, or if you just want to check one out, go to www.jamiebateman slash Haven and check out Haven Financial Services. Again, that's jamiebateman slash Haven. I uh, can't recommend them enough. Christine and her team have been fantastic. So I definitely recommend you check out Haven Financial Services at www.jamiebateman forward slash Haven. Let's get back to the show. Today, Seth Bradley is our guest. He's an attorney um, with a pretty cool story. Um, he was adopted at three months old. He's Korean, was adopted by uh, a couple who lived in West Virginia. So he grew up in West Virginia. And so unfortunately, that led to a decent amount of racism that Seth experienced. And we talk about how he dealt with that and his mentality, you know, facing racism, any other adversity in, in life, really. We also talk about how he went to med school dropped out of med school, and then ended up being come, becoming an attorney, was actually fired from a big law firm. Through all of this, he's now found abundance. He's got time freedom. Um, he works a lot because he wants to and because he loves it. Um, but he's not only an, a securities attorney who helps people who raise capital put put those deals together, put the paperwork together, stay within the boundaries of what's legal. And obviously his experience at the previous law firm is huge in that. But he's also an active real estate investor. He did 14 active deals in 2022. So as a general partner, he's not only an attorney, he's also a real estate investor, not to mention he and his wife have two gyms that they own and, and manage. So he's got a lot on his plate, a lot of exciting things going on. He's uh, someone I've gotten to know a little bit through our a mastermind group that I'm in. Seth's a great guy, brings a lot of energy and unique perspective um, to things. And, and it's a, it's a really f refreshing, fun conversation. I think we talk mostly, I'd say we talk about relationship adversity and then, you know, some financial adversity when he was fired from his job, went from making about 250,000 to zero. So bright guy, fun guy. This is a great conversation. Buckle up. Welcome to the From Adversity to Abundance podcast. Are you an entrepreneur or aspiring entrepreneur? Then this show is for you. Each week, we bring you impactful stories of real people who have overcome painful human adversity to create a life of abundance. A life of abundance. You are not alone in your struggle. Join us and you will experience the power of true stories and gain practical knowledge from founders who have turned poverty into prosperity and weakness into wealth. This podcast will encourage you through your health, relationship, and financial challenges so you can become the hero in your quest for freedom. Take ownership of the life you are destined to live. Turn your adversity into abundance. 
Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the From Adversity to Abundance podcast. I am your host, Jamie Bateman, and I am pumped today. Today, we have with us Mr. Seth Bradley. Seth is a the managing partner of Law Capital Partners. Um, Seth, how are you doing today? Doing great, brother. Good to see you, man. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, I know we got to spend some time together a few weeks back in the British Virgin Islands, yeah, which was not a, a bad a blast. place to be. Yeah, no, yeah, it was it was awesome. Um, for the listener who has no idea w- what we're talking about, Seth was a uh, one of the keynote speakers at a at a mastermind group that we uh, that we went to and um, used as an excuse. You know, we used the mastermind as an excuse to enjoy uh, Scrub Island, which was which was fantastic. Um, so I got to know you a little bit a little bit on that trip, which was awesome. So, but for the listener who is completely unfamiliar with you, Seth, um, who are you and what are you up to today? Yeah, I mean, today uh, I'm a securities attorney by trade, um, a real estate investor. Um, you know, we're doing, well, I should say we were doing. So, you know, the commercial real estate market has slowed quite a bit, but just to kind mm-hmm. of put it in context, we I, I closed on, on 14 deals last year, 14 commercial uh, commercial deals um, at, that were all syndications or funds where I was a general partner on. Um, and then, you know, my background is in big law. So I worked in big law for about six years and then started my own law firm um, as a real estate and securities attorney. And just to, I mean, you said it very clearly, but just to reiterate, these are not, those are not 14 deals that you put put together as the SEC attorney, <laughs> as the securities attorney, I should say, but as the operator, as a general partner or a general partner, so you're actively involved in commercial real estate investing. Um, that's right. Which that's right. Yeah, which is, and uh, these are you know these are large deals. I mean, anywhere from you know smallest was kind of small, like two million dollars, upwards of a seventy six million dollar um, Class A apartment building in Nashville. I mean, they're you know wow. all ranges here. Yeah. Wow, that's awesome. Well, I know I learned a ton when you were speaking a few weeks ago, and uh, I know we're going to learn a ton today about uh, you know real estate and funds and things like that. Um, but let's jump back into more of your personal story, and uh, before we get to you know your what you're up to today in depth, let's talk about some uh, some of the adversity you've been through. I know you you mentioned to me before we hit record um, some about your background, but uh, start us off. Where would you like to start, Seth? Yeah, I mean, I guess we can start it off at, at year zero. Um, I'm a <laughs> Korean adoptee. Um, I was adopted when I was three months old. I was born in South Korea, but then adopted when I was three months old and adopted by a couple of wonderful people in West Virginia, um, in the middle of nowhere, West Virginia. Um, I don't know if you're watching video or audio right now, but I don't look like I belong in West Virginia. <laughs> we'll just put it that way. So when I got to, when I got to San Diego, eventually people were like, "Oh, you're from here, right?" Whenever they meet people, I'm like, "No, I'm from West Virginia," and they're like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> that's, then, you know, that's not what I would have guessed, right? Yeah, it's we. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I'm in Maryland, and my wife, my wife and kids, and I, we just did a short trip a few months ago to West Virginia, and. I don't rem- remember seeing too many people who look like you, if I'm being honest, you know. Um, so, okay, so you, you at three months old, uh, moved to West Virginia, right? Yep, three months old, was adopted um, by a couple of great people in West Virginia. Um, not the most diverse place. We'll just put it that way. Beautiful place, really nice people for the most part. You know what I mean? And we'll kind of get into that. <laughs> But, you know, a wonderful place um, to grow up, really. But there's no diversity there. So I went to a decent-sized high school, maybe 
um, I think 1500 kids. Um, I was mm-hmm. one of two Asians. I think there were um, two black guys that, that literally we, they brought in from Canada to play on the basketball team, which is crazy. Um, and then there were no Hispanics at all. So, I mean, there, there's like zero diversity, um, which you can, ma- you can imagine has its challenges when you're growing up as a child, children mm-hmm. just say whatever they want to say, you know, it sure. might have, you know, it, they might've heard it from their parents or it might just be, Hey, I look different than everybody else. So you got to comment on it. I mean, I can see, you know, those things. Mm-hmm. So if you're not used to being around diversity, then you're not, you know, you're not used to it and you're not, you're going to comment on it, especially when, when you're young. So, you know, it was mm-hmm. definitely a, a challenge growing up, but I think that um, unlike some people, um, I, I used it as a, as fuel really to mm. kind of fuel my success and, and where I wanted to take my life. Mm. So, you know, so it sounds like you've, you dealt with a good bit of racism or or something along those lines um and then i and this is me just you know correct me if i'm wrong but did you i don't know when you learned that you were adopted but i imagine that was also a factor some a bit of adversity that you had to overcome so what i'm getting at is our guests typically the adversity that we end up talking about is it kind of ends up falling into one of one or more of three categories and that's um health financial or relationship. And so what we've talked about thus far is pretty much relationship, right? And, um, you know, so, so I guess really what I'm asking is, how about the adopted part of it? Was that a challenge for you as well? Um, It actually wasn't to be honest, like, for me personally, it wasn't a challenge, because I think, you know, I, I got lucky in a sense that my, my parents, my adopted parents are awesome. Like, they're such incredibly Mm -hmm good people like sure. they were awesome role models um you know they're they're white so they don't look like me so it's pretty obvious you know to begin mm-hmm. with so i mean there was sure. no point in trying to like hide it or something so but i you know since i can remember i knew that i was adopted but it was Got always it. reinforced in my head that it doesn't matter we love you just as if sure. you were a biological son and i That's remember awesome. that from the the day that i can start remembering things i don't know three or four years old or whatever <laughs> so it Got was it. always kind of set in my head that I'm loved and accepted and it was never, you know, an issue. So I think, you know, sometimes I I talk about other Korean adoptees that are having a lot of issues as far Mm -hmm. as, you know, belonging and, you know, they're, they're kind of in my eyes complaining because it's just the mindset that I have, but they're like, you know, they're, they're just not taking accountability for where they're at and how they feel. Um, You know, that, that, that's one thing that where I had an advantage, like maybe they didn't get adopted by, you know, the, mm-hmm. the folks that I got adopted by, that's for sure. So, you know, sure. they, they definitely have a little bit of a, a harder, harder road than I might've had, but, you know, I was still dealing with the, you know, the racism and, you know, not looking like everybody else and that sort of thing. Sure. So before we get to really how you, your, your what your mindset was, um, and how, how you approach that, uh, the racism, does anything, can you illustrate it a little bit? I mean, you know, not to, not to drill down too far, but just, um, <laughs> You know, kind of what are we talking about here? Um, you know, because certainly this is a fa- this is a, a topic that needs, unfortunately, needs addressing um, still in our in our culture. So, just give us a little bit more context as to what you were dealing with, maybe in high school or something like that. Yeah, I mean, dumb stuff, right? Like when and it develops because when when you're dealing with it when you're a kid, again, I I, I don't like to say racism unless I really like Mm -hmm. feel like it's racism so i like trying to i like trying to figure out like are you kind of ignorant to the subject and you're just kind of 
you know, just saying stuff to say stuff or it's just not, you know, it's different compared mm-hmm. to what you're used to? Or right. are you saying things with malice? Like, are mm-hmm. you meaning it in a bad way and you know exactly what you're doing? To me, there's a difference. A lot of people will say there's not, but for me, mm-hmm. there is a difference. And I think maybe it's because I was around it so much growing up, I had to kind of mm-hmm. decipher mm-hmm. that. It's like, okay, am I going to get in a fist fight with every single person that that does that? Or am I going to have to say, okay, this guy means this and this guy means that, and I'm going to fight this guy, not this guy. Like, sure. <laughs> I did gotcha. get a, in a lot of, a lot <laughs> of fights and, you know, when I'm mm-hmm. young, because you had to defend yourself and that sort of thing. But anyway, I mean, when you're a kid, it's just dumb stuff, like teasing yeah. people, like pulling your eyes back. You know what I mean? Mm, and like, sure. you know, oh, you got a flat face, like stupid mm. stuff like that when you're a kid. Right. But then as you get older, it ends up turning into something with, you know, a little bit more, you know, that malice where you know sure. people start calling me a chink and things like mm. that. Um, gotcha. That's very offensive to me. So if you sure. drop that Absolutely. word to me, um, we're, we're going to have problems. We're, we're going to have a problem <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, so it just, you know, it really depends on, you know, what, what stage of, of life really. No, I appreciate you talking about that a little bit. I know it's probably not the most, <laughs> what you the most fun thing to talk about. It's not why you wanted to come on this, on the show, but, um, it does help us, you know, just realize the, the, the reality of, of what was going on. So, so you had a loving environment, you know, at home, your parents were very supportive and, and, and accepting of you and, and, um, you know, so that helped set you up for success, it sounds like. Um, but it does sound like you you had a mindset shift with regard to how you were going to approach this racism, whether with malice or not, um, and other adversity that you dealt with. But talk to us about, you know, how or why you decided um, you weren't going to play the victim card. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it was ever even an, an option in my head. Like, I, I've just always been accountable and self-sufficient and always wanting to handle things on my own and not having to say, well, I can't do this because of that or because of that person or this person. or mm-hmm. You know, I, it's just, I, I think a lot of people use that as an excuse and it doesn't get them anywhere. Whether or not you actually have a legitimate excuse is not really the argument. Mm-hmm. I mean, some people have quote unquote privileges that other people don't. That's just life. Mm-hmm. You're born with more sure. money. You're born with less money. You're yeah. born, you know, with a dad that's going to be around or not. You know, right. you're you're born good looking or you're not. You know, like yeah. everybody's got Absolutely. their advantages and disadvantages in this life. But right. to to lean on the disadvantages as a crutch is is not going to help you. Like it's no, just I, not. It's simply not going to help you. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And it's you know. If, I didn't have the exact same experience as you, so I'm not pretending I did, but um, it just, it, life is not fair, <laughs> right. you know, and it's just not, right? So stop trying to make it fair. And, and I don't mean, I'm not, not trying to make some controversial statement about, you know, a political statement or anything like that, but it doesn't serve you or me as an individual to focus overly on on that on the, the adversity or the the unfairness or the the hate maybe that's spewed at you. And um, so I couldn't agree more. I think it's, it only serves you at, to not use that as a crutch, not use that as an excuse, not constantly play the victim card and, and instead point to what can you do to, to better your situation? What are your strengths? Who's on your side? Um, so talk to us about that. I mean, how did, how did your life go maybe after high school? Yeah. I mean, you know, again, just going back to that, I mean, I think you, you just have to make the most out of what you got, whatever. Yeah, it is. You absolutely. Know what I mean, that that's really what it comes down to, because it's not going to it's not going to help you to lean on those those 
those disadvantages if or whatever you want sure. to call it. That's a great um, lesson. Yeah. 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 But you know, I went on to I, school was always really easy for me. Um, so I went on to try to figure out, and I think this is kind of a, a mindset shift as well. I don't, I don't know how, where we categorize that, but mm-hmm. you know, I, I grew up in rural West Virginia, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't exposed to entrepreneurship, wasn't exposed to, you know, real estate investing, anything like that. My dad's a retired coal miner. My mom's a retired school teacher. It was just kind of like, okay, basically, you know, trading your time for money. What's the, what's the best job you can get? And to mm-hmm. me, that was to become a doctor um, mm-hmm. at the time. So I kind of went down that pathway through college, did all that, got into med school, went to med school for a year, got in my second year. And in my second year, about halfway through, I just, I walked out cause I knew it wasn't for me. I just, I just hated mm-hmm. it. I was like, you know, everybody's looking forward to get to like the clinical side. And I'm just like, man, this is just more stuff. I know that I don't want to do. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I went on to end up getting my MBA just to kind of stay mm-hmm. in school. Cause I was good at sure. it. And I was yeah. like, I think this will be useful for whatever I end up doing. Um, sure. And then I went on to to law school with the same mentality. Mm-hmm. It was still the same. Well, what's the next best job that I can get? And to me, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, I'm not going to be a doctor. Um, mm-hmm. I guess I'm going to be a lawyer. So I did mm-hmm. that. Um, mm-hmm. Actually, did really well in in school, uh, law school, and got a you know a, a big law firm job out of there, and kind of went down mm-hmm. that pathway. And I think that's when, not that I didn't have the entrepreneur in me before. I think I've always had it, but mm-hmm. I started kind of looking around and I was exposed to business people, exposed to real estate investors, seeing what they were doing, mm-hmm. representing them as clients. And that's when I, you know, the light bulb really went on and I started thinking, okay, I, I don't want to be a vendor. I don't want to be um, necessarily an attorney. Not that I didn't like it, but what I want to mm-hmm. do is own equity. In these pro- I want to own these mm-hmm. properties. I want to mm-hmm. run this business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of when the, the light bulb went on and I started exploring those avenues. Yeah. So just briefly, what was it that drew you to becoming a doctor at the time? You know, I, it sounds like you did well at school. So you you just thought you, you should get a high paying job that, you know, maybe that's, those are my words, but um, yeah. <laughs> what, what, why did you initially go down the doctor path? Yeah. I mean, I think it was a combination of money potential mm-hmm. and achievement. It was just kind of, to me, it's like, what's, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have necessarily a, a passion for anything when I was younger. So it's like, okay, sure. well, okay. what What's the best pathway then? Um, sure. And to me, it was just to become a doctor. I think yeah. a combination of money and just, you know, prestige and achievement, that sort of thing. Oh, it makes sense. And it, it's it's easy for us to sit here and look back and say, why did you make that decision, Seth? And, you know, it's, yeah. I didn't I didn't know what I was <laughs> going to do it even after college, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. It's um, funny when you're like 18 to 22 years old and you're supposed to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life. It's like, sure, absolutely. I'm just, chasing girls and trying to live, <laughs> right. trying to live yeah. my life. <laughs> yeah, no, if my, if my kids will listen to me, I'll tell them, you know, just get a, just get a business degree or something. If you're, you know, if yeah. college even makes sense to be honest, but, um, you know, people change careers so often these days anyway, it doesn't make a lot of sense to lock in at that young age, but okay. So then you pivot, go to law school and then, or you get your, you get your MBA and then you go to law school. Is that right? Yep. Got it. And you do well in law school and then you, you get an attorney role. So what, how, how did that go? Yeah. I mean, it went well. I mean, I, once I got into a big law firm, my idea was just to kind of go down that traditional path and become partner, you know, build mm-hmm. whatever hours, do whatever you got to do. Um, mm-hmm. you know, bring in clients, kind of go down that traditional pathway and just become a partner, whatever it takes. Um, sure. but, you know, along the way though, I started investing in real estate. I mean, the first 
basically the first paycheck I got started going towards a mortgage payment on a duplex that my wife and I bought and house hacked into. We lived in one half, nice. house hacked the other half. And and that was kind of our first rental property, still own that today. And, such a, such know, a good way to, such a powerful way to get into real estate investing. It's fantastic. Absolutely. It's basically free. I mean, you know, yeah. you put three and a half, five percent down at the most because it's owner occupied. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully, you know, the other unit or units um, pay mm-hmm. your mortgage and pay your other expenses and you're living there for free. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Now, I used yeah. to always listen to the Bigger Pockets podcast and, you know, some things I don't necessarily now buy into as much as I used to, but that is one thing that they used to promote that I still think is, if you can do it, such a fantastic way to really launch your real estate investing career, if you will. The the best way. If you're young and you've got flexibility in, in where you live and what you're, you know, what you're willing to, to mm-hmm. do, I mean, house hack into one, live in it for a year or two, house hack into the next one and do that for mm-hmm. five five years. And now you've got five cash flowing properties. And that's a pretty dang good start to, to your career. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then time is on your side as yeah. well, which is which is awesome. So okay, so how did your career go at the at the big law firm? Yeah, I mean, it went pretty well um, while my head was kind of still in the game um, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, having to bill a million hours and, you know, you've got a million bosses, like basically everybody that's got one more of experience over you at a big mm-hmm. law firm is your boss. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, w- mm-hmm. in one way or another. So it's it's kind of a ridiculous thing that they have set up. But it's, you know, it. I, I did learn some lessons while I was going through it. Um, mm-hmm. Got tons of good experience for sure. Um but, you know, one was I, I really started seeing kind of the senior partners, the managing partners, the guys mm-hmm. that really, quote unquote, made it. Um, yeah. You know, they're still, you know, they're in their 60s, um, mm-hmm. some in their 70s, and they're still like in the office. And I'm just like, <laughs> what are these guys doing here? I mean, you know, they're they're making yeah. over a million dollars a year and they have been mm-hmm. for a long time, more sure. than likely. And it's like, all right, well, you you've made it. Like you've made your yeah. money, like, done what you away. needed to do. Like, what are, what are you still doing here? And they're like, sure. you know, they're, they're just hanging out at the office, not hanging out, they're billing hours, but they were like, yeah. they're not in a hurry, let's say to get home. And I think mm-hmm. whenever you get to that level of success in a law firm, for the most part, it, it's really hard to keep up your um, kind of your social responsibilities with your family mm-hmm. and your friends and kind of keeping mm-hmm. balance, quote unquote, with, with the other things. Um, and you end up being really good at it. You end up being really good at being a lawyer, I think. So I think you, you get kind of a a good Mm -hmm. feeling from it, but then it just becomes your life. And I just saw that as if this is success, if I stick with this, then I don't want it. Now it's kind of the first pivotal moment where I'm like, I saw what success looked like if I continued down this path and it wasn't something that I desired any longer. Um, so that was the first thing. And the second thing was, the second pivotal moment for me in a law firm was really these clients that were closing all these deals for, um, they're regular people, you know, they're, they're taking down 10 million, 20 million, $50 million properties. And they're just regular guys, right? Like they're not these, I don't know, crazy, like real estate moguls or whatever Mm -hmm. you kind of envision when you're growing up these people to be, they're just regular people. And that's when I, you know, that mindset started to change a little bit. I started thinking I can, I can do this. Um, and then I started investing in bigger and bigger properties passively into syndications mm-hmm. and then kind of working my way to the active side as well. That's awesome. So yeah, I basically, it sounds like you were able to uh, watch and, and witness firsthand what you didn't want to become 
and then what presented uh, the the other option of what you might want to become or you know yeah. you, you saw basically what you didn't want to do and what you did want to do from that same same position at the law firm it sounds like um yeah so i actually awesome. haven't heard anybody frame it that way but that's right <laughs> that's exactly what that is that's awesome <laughs> um yeah you have to update your your bio sheet um for sure know, with, make sure you you quote me on there no i'm kidding. got it uh, <laughs> no that's uh yeah hey the host can have we can have rev- revelations both of us on this show um there we go. <laughs> so okay so now how did that what was your next uh phase how did that um uh, part of your career end. Yeah. So I just kind of continued along that pathway and got more and more interested in you know, growing the real estate business, getting involved on deals. Um, we all, my wife and I actually own two gyms right now as well. So we we started that business and I got unceremoniously shown the door um, huh. involuntarily, we'll say, um, because of my, my mind just wasn't there, right? Like my heart mm-hmm. wasn't in the job anymore. Mm-hmm. I wasn't focused on billing 2,500 hours a year anymore. I, you know, I, my mind was on real estate, my own real mm-hmm. estate, not my client's real estate. My mind was on sure. running, you know, businesses and becoming financially free and eventually mm-hmm. leaving this job. So yeah. it just, my mind wasn't there anymore. And in looking back now, of course, at the time I was taken back and I was like, mad and you know yeah, sad e- and whatever e- else ego but, takes a big hit it's a big ego for sure hit. and yeah. you know now looking back i'm like yeah i probably deserve that you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i can uh, i can relate a little bit i was i worked for the federal government for actually 14 years for the department of defense after i was in the military and for the second half of that 14 years so the final seven years uh up until last march i i was building my businesses and working part-time still with the, you know, so probably three, four years in, it was like, now granted it's, it's a lot easier to keep your federal government job than it is uh, your attorney (laughs) job. But, but uh, my, it just, it just, I just wasn't there. It just, my mind was not there. I was not there at all. And I don't, yeah, I wasn't the best employee at that point, you know, toward the end there. So um it became very clear to me that I needed to uh, needed to quit, so that's what I did. But anyway, I, I know exactly what you're you're saying as far as just your focus isn't there, and and you're you're focused on honestly on bigger and better things as far as I'm concerned. Um, so in taking con- you know ownership of your situation, taking control of your financial future. Um, so after your your bruised ego, you know, <laughs> healed up a little bit. How did things progress from the? Uh, uh, entrepreneurial side or investing side? Yeah, I mean, it was, you know, that was kind of an abrupt end to that that chapter, but it was still lingering, I would say, you know, like, obviously a big hit to the ego and initial reaction was a little bit of panic. It was like, oh no, what do, what do I do now? Like, I need to replace this income immediately. Um, started getting on like LinkedIn and applying to more jobs and, you know, just all that yeah. kind of stuff that you have, well, have do you to mind? do. I'm sorry to cut you off. i just oh, curious. You're good. You don't have to get too specific. It's obviously whatever you're comfortable <laughs> with, but but just context. I mean, you know, how much does an attorney in, at that position make approximately? And then all of a sudden it's zero. Yeah. I mean, pushing like 250 grand a year. I mean, easily, you it's know, good, just really, yeah. It's good money. Yeah. <laughs> I was making maybe around 250 a year um, salary without that. That doesn't even include like annual bonuses or anything bonuses. like that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So it was really, you know, really good money. 
but you yeah. know you're working for that money and it's a high stress environment um sure. and your and your days are numbered if you don't produce so hmm. um but yeah i mean it's a big drop right you go from, yeah. from that to to zero Nothing. or whatever kind of little income that i had from the real estate and all that kind of stuff sure it wasn't little but it was little compared to that um yeah. once i kind of caught my breath and and said you know what i this is kind of an opportunity rather than mm. um a failure um it's it's a, it's a time to to say okay well this is what you want to do so let's try to make this work sure. so it was it was gradual and then i took some contract work like some never like full time anymore um started my own law firm took on a couple clients here and there and then really started focusing on building the real estate business hmm. love that and and again, we're not saying overnight you you know you you got over your you, the ego blow and you you were you know in this fantastic positive mindset the next day. We're not saying that, but but um, you know what came to mind when you were just talking about that was the fact that you already had practice at uh, with the with the racism. You had practice at not pulling that victim card. Um, you know, so that's my you know maybe I'm yeah you know overanalyzing here, but but at some point it doesn't serve you to say, why was I fired? You know, right. why, why am I the victim here? And so you, uh, exercise that muscle again, I guess, and, and, uh, and took the bull by the horns and, and started to really, um, well talk about it. What did you do after that? I know, I know you've built quite an impressive, uh, portfolio and, and business. So talk about that. Yeah. I just wanted to comment on what you just said there. I mean, yeah, it's really easy to get, mad at the people that fired you right or the people sure. that you know you think did something to you it's easy you're like okay because then you don't have to deal with it internally you say well mm -hmm. that was an external factor that i mm -hmm. couldn't control it's their fault they should have you know they should have given me a second or third or fourth or fifth chance mm -hmm. like why did they do that they wouldn't have done it to Susie down the hall but they did it to me like you, mm -hmm. you just start thinking like that that's the wrong way to think because again, it's not going to get you anywhere. Like that's sure. not going to help you. You can blame that's it on them point. all you want and then you don't have to deal with it. I guess that's a positive for some people, but it's not mm -hmm. going to help you in the long run kind of grow from it and 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 get better as a person. I love that. It's really, really good take. So how long did it take you to kind of start really taking action and in, 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 uh, building your own your own thing? Yeah, I mean, it took some time. Um, it, it's not overnight. I mean, it started, I had already started investing, you know, I started investing in real estate in 2013. So it, it, it was way after that. Um, mm -hmm. And but it was mostly like single family fix and flips, like, you know, those sorts of things, and then started investing passively in syndications. Um, mm -hmm. And then working my way to the active side, working my way to the active side, I started thinking, okay, you know, started looking at, uh, you know, listening to podcasts, reading books, like, mm -hmm. how do I get involved? Um, Initially, I wanted to get all the way away from legal. So I didn't want to do any more legal work. I was like, mm -hmm. okay, well, how do I get involved? And started looking at, okay, well, I can probably raise some capital. I've got a pretty good network. I can get involved mm -hmm. in that way and then kind of get involved in the operations and kind of learn that and maybe start sourcing deals really slow. Um, not as fast as I thought I'd be able to build it. I thought maybe I'd be a better capital raiser than I actually mm -hmm. am. Um, and it, it was just slow. I was only able to do you know a deal here or there. Um, and then eventually I was like, this isn't going to, this isn't going to work. Like, it's just mm -hmm. not scaling as quickly as I wanted to grow. Um, mm -hmm. and I had to do some self-reflection and just started thinking, well, what's, what's your highest and best use, especially mm -hmm. to a syndicator. And that's what I used to do is, is putting <laughs> together the deal. Like it's the deal mm -hmm. structuring. It's the cap. It's like teaching people how to raise capital legally, 
it's putting the fund and the syndication together. Um, mm-hmm. Those things that I had already done for a million different people as a as an attorney, they need that. So sure. I, I started kind of going back to that legal side. And that's how I started partnering with people on deals. I started raising capital, doing the legal, underwriting, mm-hmm. you know, assisting them with deal structuring after the fact, like, you know, any kind of transfers and all that sort of stuff. It's a, it's a big value add to a team, especially when sure. you have somebody internally acting as sort of a, an in-house counsel role rather than an outside counsel role who might need to to bill hours to get paid and and those sorts of things. There's different kind of factors that that come into play. And that's mm-hmm. when I really got some traction. So even like last year we closed, I was a GP on 14 deals. Mm-hmm. Um so we really got some traction last year. That's and <laughs> even towards the end of the year before that. But this year, you know, a little bit slower. So I'm mm-hmm. putting some funds together for people. I'm working on some startups. Um, but I think that's kind of the the beautiful thing about where I'm at right now. It's it's kind of having that freedom, that flexibility to take on the work that I want to and need to and, and but not have to. Sure. I mean, with your background, you've clearly shown you have versatility and flexibility and and multiple different types of skill sets. Um, so w- when you did your last year, 2022, approximately what percentage of time were you were you doing like the GP thing versus the lawyer thing? I know there's a lot of crossover, but a lot of crossover. Know. But I mean, as far as just doing legal work, I didn't do any. I wasn't taking on any mm-hmm. legal work last year at all. I took on zero. I got asked to do it. I said no. I just I don't have time because we had so many deals going mm-hmm. on. So zero. Gotcha. <laughs> okay. No, oh, that's that's a. Uh, <laughs> I didn't expect zero. So, yeah. <laughs> but now now this year, your st- things have slowed down due to I would guess you know market conditions and yeah, um, the economy is a little bit different now than it was twelve yeah. months ago. Um, so you're uh, opened up a little bit more to legal work, right? Yeah, opened up a little bit more to legal work as far as forming some funds for people, teaching people how to structure these things and how to raise capital the legal way. Um, that sort of thing. I think it's really important right now to educate people on on how to raise capital the right way because a lot of people don't even realize that you know they're doing something wrong, which is crazy to think about. But um, you've <laughs> got to you know people need to know um, how to do this because over the last let's say twelve years or so, the market's been incredible. We've been on a bull run in real estate. Anybody mm-hmm. that started a syndication or bought a multifamily property and mm-hmm. ran it okay probably yeah. did pretty well for their investors. Sure. Um, and so they're not getting sued. They're not getting, <laughs> um, you know, whispers from the SEC. Like you're just not running into those problems because you've got happy investors. But you're seeing this year, you know, there's capital calls. There's people not happy mm-hmm. with, you know, the returns not coming to them. Um, mm-hmm. So you're going to see, hopefully not. Hopefully the economy mm-hmm. will change and we, we won't see all this. Sure. But if it continues, you might mm-hmm. see the SEC kind of, fishing around and doing some more investigations and, and trying to figure out, um, you know, was capital raised the right way? Did they claim the right exemption? Like, were all these things done correctly? Because if they were not, then, you know, there's going to be some, there's going to be some consequences to the the capital raisers and to the the sponsors that have put these deals together in a, in a not so compliant way. Hmm. Now, what have you learned from the just speaking about capital raising, either from you know from from any of your experience, any any part of your your uh, history, what have you learned? What are some lessons um, about effective capital raising? Because I, I do capital raising, and it's not necessarily easy. Um, yeah, 
And so what are some tricks or tips you could give to somebody out there, you know, assuming they're doing it in a legal fashion, how do you raise capital? What are some, some pointers? Um, well, I mean, as an attorney, like the first thing I do is make sure they understand kind of what those, what those rails look like, what those guidelines look like. Um, and usually the first thing I say that, that messes people up is you, you can't raise capital and only raise capital and get paid to do it. And that's it. And people are like, wait, what, what if I'm the GP or what if I'm this or that? It's like, well, Mm -hmm. yeah, if you're the GP, but as long as you're doing other stuff, as long as you're acting like a GP, as long as you're you're underwriting mm-hmm. and managing the asset and tending meetings and, and doing mm-hmm. all the other things that GPs should be doing. Mm-hmm. That's fine. But most, most quote unquote, you know, capital raisers that are just partnering with the real lead sponsors, a lot of times, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're a name general partner, but they're just raising capital. And mm-hmm. a lot of times they're just getting paid based on how much they raise, which makes it even mm-hmm. worse. Um, it happens all the time. I, I see it every single day. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that that first step really is to learn and to educate yourself mm-hmm. as far as what what you can and cannot do, and then base your start building your business off of that. Like, what do sure. I need to do to stay legally compliant? And then that's when you can get into the more fun stuff as far as like marketing mm-hmm. and starting a podcast and yeah. you know having those investor calls. Like that stuff is all after you actually know like the rules of the game. You have to know sure. the rules of the game before you start playing it. No, that's a great, great way to put it. So <laughs> once you've established uh, those guardrails and the rules of the game, then what? I know you have your your podcast and um, has that has that been a key factor in, in your ability to raise capital? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think you have to have a platform um, that can be either that could be a podcast. It could be a YouTube channel. It could be just going on other people's podcasts. Um, it could just be a, a Twitter feed if you're really good at that. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. you've got to have some sort of forum, some sort of platform to where you can yeah. reach strangers. Um, you know, the first time you raise capital, it can be from friends and family and you might have a successful raise. And then maybe depending on your current network, of course, mm-hmm. it, it it can continue to go well. But at some point, you're going to run out of people that you just know mm-hmm. and you're going to have to go out to strangers and you've got to have a, a continual pipeline of, of new investors if you're going to sure. do this for a living. Mm-hmm. So in order to do that, either you get really good at networking and really mm-hmm. good at what you do, which can happen. And then you sure. just get referral based, you know, referral based people coming mm-hmm. into your, your pipeline, or you do that. Plus you have some sort of a platform. And, mm-hmm. you know, again, if you're not interested, interested in starting your own podcast, which is a lot of work, you know, that it is a lot of, it um, is a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. You can just go yeah. on other people's podcasts. Like, yeah. Start to think about like what your message is, what will serve you as well as educate the audience and, sure. and start reaching out to people and get on other people's podcasts. Cause that's probably, um, you know, that's a lot easier than running your own. Absolutely. It is a lot of work for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and I, I would say, I, I would add it. on to that, like do it with a purpose, right? Like some people just like, when you first start out, you're just happy to be on a podcast. And then yeah. eventually sooner rather than later, you got to figure out, okay, well, if I'm going to put an hour into this show, what am yeah. I going to talk about? Why am I talking about it? Like, how does it serve my business? Um, just so you can just, you have a purpose. And a lot of times it might just be as simple as creating a lead magnet so you can get leads into your mm-hmm. funnels and start that email relationship with people and eventually, um, you know, get them on a call, talk to them about their investments and then send them a deal. Um, yeah. So you've just kind of got to get all that laid out. Absolutely. No, it's, I think it's, I we haven't talked much on my show about, uh, running, starting a podcast, yeah. running a podcast. <laughs> um, 
but it's I, I heard something like 15% of the four plus million shows that are out there actually have produced content in the last, you know, an episode in the last 60 days, something like that. So most people quit. They start a podcast and oh, they yeah. quit um, or they just let it die. Um, so speaking to what you just said, you need, you need to know your your why behind the podcast as well. So um, makes a lot of sense. So from a, a business standpoint, because, you know, let's be honest, most attorneys maybe aren't the best at running a business. <laughs> and I know, you, you know, it's not just the real estate. I know you have the two gyms with your wife, like you mentioned, um, you know, what surprises have, have you dealt with as far as becoming an entrepreneur, running your own business, multiple businesses? Um, what's challenged you more than you expected? Um, you know, just so as an attorney, you're kind of trained to assess risk and figure out where that risk comes from and try to try to mitigate that as much as possible. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's always a good strategy. But when that happens, you also become very conservative, right? Like you're, you're very mm -hmm. risk averse. Sure. You're conservative. You don't necessarily want to take um, risks and especially for your clients. So it, it's the right way to be as an attorney, but as sure. you kind of venture out into the business world and now I'm kind of in a startup world, there's a yeah. lot of risk. There's tons of risk and it's, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost championed to be able to be a risk taker mm. as an entrepreneur. It, it's something you have to, you have to deal with. You, you have to every single day, you know, just, you have to deal with risk, whether it's spending time on something that might turn into nothing or, you know, risk as far as, yeah, I, I think the biggest thing is, is okay, I'm putting mm -hmm. all this time and effort and money, but is it going to pan out? I don't mm -hmm. know. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. There, yeah. There's just a, you know, a, a an appetite for risk that you have to have an entrepreneurship that you might not to have might not have to have if you're in a, a w2 no it's definitely true and and you know when i run something past an attorney if they don't come back with some kind of issue then i'm like what am i what am i paying you for you know so i mean that's that's their job right is to point out risk and and point out potential issues um same thing with like a a, a house inspector home inspector if they don't list out all these things that are wrong with the house you're going to buy well, then what are they doing? So, but my point is that you, if you want to buy that house, there's still, there's always going to be something that could go wrong with it. Um, so yeah, that's got to be tough being the, the kind of wearing both, both hats at the same time. Um, yeah. as far as just, you know, kind of, you know, compartmentalizing, I guess, in a way your, your attorney risk averse approach versus no, I'm a business owner. I'm a start. I'm a founder. I got it. Let's go for this. Anything else to add? To that exactly yeah i mean you've got to I, I again i think it's still good practice you you have to know the risks you have to assess the risks in a in an honest way but at that point it doesn't just stop it doesn't just stop there and you say oh this is risky quote unquote um this is risky quote unquote and now i've got to stop what i'm doing you've got to go forward and figure out well what is, if i want to continue on what are the solutions like how can i get how can i mitigate this risk by solving this problem or changing my plan so that I can move forward with the business plan and close this deal or launch this product or continue this raise. Yeah. All right, Seth. So as we start to wrap up here, before we get to our rapid fire questions, um, you know, we've talked a good bit about some of the adversity that you've overcome. Let's talk about abundance, what that means to you and what that looks like in your life today. Yeah, I mean, when I think about abundance, I think about freedom, 
Like I think some people translate abundance to money, but to me, even money represents freedom, freedom of time, freedom of, you know, how you, how you, who you want to spend your time with. I mean, it really comes down to time, right? Like people break down freedom of time, freedom of money, freedom of location. But I, I think it really comes down to time and mm-hmm. the flexibility that you have. Uh, we were chatting before the podcast. It's like, you know, I work more now probably mm-hmm. as, as an entrepreneur than I ever did mm-hmm. even billing 2,500 hours mm-hmm. a year as an attorney. But it's just, it's totally different. It's not as heavy because I know sure. I'm working towards, I'm, I'm working towards my goals. I'm working for myself. Um, yeah. I'm doing what I want to do. Um, rather than somebody else telling me what to do. It's just a totally different, um, different thing. And, and, and when you, when you evolve your businesses to the way that you want them to be, then it doesn't really feel like work anymore. So, I mean, yeah. for me, it's, it's the overcoming the adversity to abundance was just taking that accountability and turning that into my own businesses and how I handle things myself and mm-hmm. being able to translate that to to this abundance, which for me mm-hmm. is flexibility of time. Got it. That's a great answer. Awesome. So I've got some rapid fire questions for you. You ready? Ready, man. All right. What is one thing that people misunderstand about you, Seth? Ooh, that's a tough one. Um, I think that I care. That sounds kind of weird, but like I think that I come off a little bit aloof or stoic mm-hmm. sometimes it's a little unemotional but it's mm-hmm. just kind of how i've trained myself to be but mm-hmm. i i am thinking i am caring i am <laughs> listening it's just yeah. a lot of times i as an, as an entrepreneur with a ton of different businesses a lot of different moving parts yeah. i tend to not let things affect me um on the exterior yeah. i can i'm <laughs> i'm chuckling because i can relate so yeah <laughs> <laughs> um What's one of your biggest failure, failures or regrets looking back at your life so far, professional career, um, something you'd like to do over? Yeah, I mean, I don't like that because I think we've always, you know, we we become the people that we're supposed to become and we've become sure. that person because of the things that we went through. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I mean, if I had to put it on anything, med school was definitely a mistake. Mm. <laughs> Just going, I mean, going I to med school. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't for me. I did it for the money, the prestige, really like all the wrong reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't serve me now. Being an attorney at a big law firm, yeah. my law degree, like my MBA, like all that stuff serves me still today. The sure. the medical stuff is mm-hmm. so unrelated to what I do now that it, it really doesn't serve me any longer. Doesn't help you in the with the gyms and the fitness stuff at all. It's so <laughs> far in the past, man. It's gotcha. Um if you could go back and give your 18-year-old self some advice, what would it be? Um, get help, get a coach, get a mentor, you know, to help you even work through the idea. Cause I always wondered, like, I was questioning, like, what do I want to do? Like I knew that being a doctor mm-hmm. wasn't necessarily it. It was just the thing, the best mm-hmm. thing at the time. Um, so I think if I would have been more open to finding a mentor or a coach or somebody that can kind of work through those questions that I had, I might have gotten the right direction sooner. That's a good answer. I can relate to that one too. If you were given $10 million tomorrow, what would you do with it? Um, I would put it in passive income vehicles for sure. Something with hard assets, real estate, because I know real estate. Um, The only Mm -hmm. time I've ever gotten in trouble with investing is when I invest in something I don't know. 
um, have mm. noticed that pattern. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. When, when I get involved with something I don't understand and it's just mm-hmm. kind of that shiny object, I've learned that lesson and now I know what I know and love and that's real estate. So it's either real estate or it's real estate related. So if I had 10 mm-hmm. million bucks, um, passive income vehicles for sure in real estate. Got it. Awesome. What is a challenge that you're facing right now in your in your business life? Um, yeah, so like this year, my business has changed a little bit to where I'm taking on these kind of leadership executive roles with startups. Um, I'm involved with three right now. So it's really kind of stretching my mind um, mm-hmm. as far as, you know, again, going from attorney to the attorney mindset to like an entrepreneurial mindset mm-hmm. to now like a startup entrepreneur mm-hmm. mindset, totally different because we're now we're talking about kind of these, you know, when we're looking at a real estate asset, it's like, okay, we, we know what the rent is now. We know where we think we can get to the rent to. We know what mm-hmm. the expenses are going to be. And then we can build a pro forma projections based on that. Sure. When we're dealing with startups, it's like, <laughs> we might, we yeah. might have this product or we have this idea that we're going to turn into a product, which we haven't done yet. And we think that we're going to hire these 10 people and raise this much money and sell this many of those things in this amount of time. It's just so speculative mm-hmm. in my mind, because I'm used to dealing sure. with hard assets that it's it's kind of wrapping my head around that. But I, I do love the excitement of it. I love mm-hmm. the idea of like, you know, 100x multiples and, and crazy mm-hmm. things like that. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You can certainly lose money in real estate, but, you know, you've done so many deals now it's essentially the same thing over and over with different variables, you know, but, but yeah, startups, that's a whole different world. What types of startups are you involved with? If you can talk about it. Yeah. Um, one is Clavis technologies. So okay. it's actually, eventually it's going to be an end to end, um, residential real estate transaction platform. But for now we're really working with an automate or working on an automated, um, an automated system that will replace a transaction coordinator. That's that's really the idea, right? So transaction coordinator kind of they they send papers from one person to the next and get these signatures mm-hmm. and then a document repository and you know all these different things that can be done electronically. Um, sure. And we've been able to find a way to build an AI based program mm-hmm. that learns and communicates with all the different parties. And we're ready to go to private beta here in the next mm-hmm. next week. Wow, that's awesome. I don't, I don't know how the uh, getting everything. Uh... Dealing with the the you know townships doing recording that's a different different challenge but <laughs> yeah and I should I should definitely mention another one which is I'm yeah. working with um, Tribevest who is is not it yeah. is a startup but they've been in business for a while now but this this probably resonated with your audience because yeah. we we talked about kind of raising capital and in the mm-hmm. SEC issues that come up whenever you raise capital the wrong way right so we've Sure. People tend to use this co-GP model where you're, you've got these capital raisers that come in, they raise capital and they don't do anything else. Well, guess what? That's illegal. You're not supposed to do that, but mm-hmm. it's cheap. It's a cheap way to do it. The better mm-hmm. way to do it is a fund to funds model where mm-hmm. this capital raiser has their own fund that they raise capital for. And then they come into that target company or that lead sponsors deal as a limited partner. Um, the problem with that model is it's expensive, right? Because then mm-hmm. you've got this top level lead sponsor that's putting together mm-hmm. a syndication. And then you've got each fund manager that has their own fund that mm-hmm. has, it's another syndication. So, sure. you know, if you've got five capital raisers, that's five plus one funds, it's expensive. Um, sure. So we're working on a product 
to make it much, much less expensive and really automate the process um, in the meantime, because you probably know as, as well as any with all the interviews mm-hmm. you've done that this is the way that it's going, right? Like trying to figure out where the um, where the expensive bottlenecks are and where technology mm-hmm. can replace it. You know, there's a companies out there already like that are doing this in the startup world, like Carta, um, like AngelList, places like that, that, that are um, automating uh, mm-hmm. securities documentation and the process and the raising capital process. And we're taking mm-hmm. that to the the real estate world. Mm-hmm. And that you're doing that with, with TribeVest, right? Yes. Got it. That's awesome. Um, fantastic. How about, I don't know if we've talked about any books. Do you have a book or two that you could recommend for my audience? Um, right now, because this is a little bit outside of what I typically read, but The Lean Startup by mm-hmm. Eric Rise. Mm-hmm. Um, it is about startups and how to test a product and taking it to kind of like that Series A funding round, which sounds mm-hmm. a little bit crazy for people that are doing real estate or something else. But mm-hmm. there's so many great concepts that you can take from that as far as kind of production over perfection and just kind of putting together mm-hmm. that that MVP, that minimal viable product and just getting right. it out there and test it and then tweak it and then put it back out there and then tweak it and test it and tweak it and test it till you get something that everybody wants and there's a demand for rather mm-hmm. than just getting this product perfect, putting it out there and then nobody wants it. Like there's there's a lot of lessons to be learned there. Sure, love it. Now, as we as we wrap up, I know we're short short on time here. If if somebody wanted to reach out to you, um, you know, who wants to raise capital and wants to contact you to talk about putting together fund or syndication documents, what does that process look like? Yeah, um, so I have all of my links and things in, in the same place. You can go to sethpaulbradley.com. That's probably the best place to start. Um, and then all my contact info is there as well. So you can just reach out to me via email is probably the best way to get started. And you can find me on all social media platforms as well. Awesome. Well, Seth, this has been fantastic. Is there anything that you want to cover real quick before we hop out of here? That's it, brother. I think we covered everything. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Well, Seth Bradley, uh, we really appreciate you taking your time to stop by and, and share some wisdom with us and, um, Thanks. Thanks a lot. It's, it's been awesome. Hi, Jamie. Appreciate it, man. And to the listener out there, thank you for spending your most valuable resource with us. And that is your time. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Investors, have you ever experienced challenging communication or the headache of tracking taxes and insurance? Meet BiFi, a loan servicing company founded by investors for investors. With an expert team and best-in-class vendors, BiFi will partner with you to service your loan from start to exit. Visit BiFiLS.com to see how you can get started today. That's B-I-F-I-L-S.com. Thank you for spending your most valuable resource with us, your time. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and fellow podcast listeners. One entrepreneur at a time, we can change the world. See you next time. Hey there, it's Jamie Bateman. Ever felt boxed in by life's challenges? Dive into my new book, From Adversity to Abundance, Inspiring Stories of Mental, Physical, and Financial Transformation, available now on Amazon. From a former bank robber's redemption to a young entrepreneur's victory over hurdles, these stories are not just inspiration. 
They're the roadmaps to your transformation. Whether for you or as a powerful gift to friends and family, especially those who might not tune into podcasts, this book is a beacon to a life of abundance. Ignite that inner fire and set your course to the life you've imagined. Purchase yours today on Amazon and light the path for someone you love.